welcome to 13, a bi-weekly podcast where one Colgate University community member answers 13 questions about their work. My name is Daniel DeVries, and today I'm talking with Roy D. and Margaret B. Wooster, professor of the classics, Robert Garland. Professor Garland is an expert on Greek religion, Greek urban development, Greek society and social values, and Athenian topography. He also has an uncanny knack for finding the threads between antiquity and the modern world, and he's a well-respected scholar on the lives of everyday people in the ancient world. A prolific author, Professor Garland has published 14 books, dozens of journal articles, taught three popular great courses series, and has penned two TED-Ed video productions that together have more than 8 million views on YouTube. He earned his master's from McMaster University and his PhD from University College London. His most recent book, Athens Burning, The Persian Invasion of Greece and the Evacuation of Attica, was published by Johns Hopkins University Press in 2017. Professor Garland, welcome to 13. Thank you very much for having me, Dan. I'm delighted to be here. Well, we're glad to have you. So we'll jump right into question one. Okay. There's a section about higher education in your book, Ancient Greece, Everyday Life in the Birthplace of Western Civilization, that states that youths of about 16 years of age, maybe middle age at that point, I don't know, um, were mostly, not quite, sorry, were mostly taught rhetoric and philosophy. You write, the ability to speak in public was not only the hallmark of a well-educated gentleman, but also a vital attribute for anyone who wished to make a mark for himself in a democratic society, whether in the political assembly or in the law courts, or in more formal contexts such as the symposium. This is still essentially the core of a liberal arts education. How does your classroom compare to those of ancient Greece? A very good question. Of course, the... Um... The way in which youths were taught to deliver in Athens, specifically, would be before a large audience. And that requires a style of delivery that is rather different from the kind of conversation that one has in a class. Um, in ancient Greece, everything was very much in the public sphere. The importance of learning rhetoric uh, was paramount because, as you mentioned, there were so many focuses, foci, uh, where you would want to be competent to address and to persuade. Persuasion was what the objective was. I think that we actually don't pay sufficient attention uh, to rhetoric. Rhetoric perhaps has a slightly um, un fortunate meaning today. It's come to be associated with um, arguments that are not necessarily very um, well grounded. And that, of course, is always part of the issue behind rhetoric. Do you actually persuade by telling the truth or do you persuade by telling lies? Mm. I do think that uh, public speaking, even in the context of the classroom, how is invaluable I think that anybody who teaches very quickly comes to understand that there are some students who are very ready and forthright in their expression of opinions and others who find it a little difficult to come forward. And I think it is the um, one of the goals of uh, certainly my classroom and indeed of a liberal arts classroom uh, to engender a kind of confidence in all the students taking the class so that they can speak. They may not end up giving speeches, so to speak, but the expression of opinion is the beginning of being able to 
persuade and to present your argument cogently, clearly, and with a attitude of voice, a tone of voice as well, which is important. So I would say to you, in short, firstly, I do think that in all forms of education, and certainly in the liberal arts education system, that uh, learning how to express your ideas before your peers is invaluable. It's in some ways almost equally valuable as what we put the most emphasis upon, which of course is writing, I would say. Um, that I think, however, um, in an ideal world would be slightly different. I think we would uh, encourage our students to be more open in their speech. And I do think that um, if we can make the classroom a place where students learn to um, not simply answer questions in a straightforward way, but to develop a more formal argument, I think that is all to the good. Hmm. Mark Cartwright writes in Ancient History Encyclopedia Online that critics of democracy, such as Thucydides and Aristophanes, pointed out that not only were proceedings dominated by an elite, but that the demos, or the public, could be too often swayed by a good orator or popular leaders, get carried away with their emotions, or lack the necessary knowledge to make informed decisions. Based on this, what would ancient thinkers like Socrates or Solon think about the headlines being generated by our modern democracies right now? What an excellent question. <laughs> um, I, I really relish, by the way, um, being able to bring the ancient world into the modern world, the modern world into the ancient world. That's why I've stayed with classics all these years, because I have found consistently that it has provided me with a set of tools, so to speak, in order to interpret in all sorts of ways my current reality, whether it is as an individual or whether it is as a citizen or bystander or whatever it might be. So you alluded to Thucydides and Aristophanes there at the beginning, and, and they are indeed critics of democracy. And that is one of the very difficult things to understand because some of the major figures, really all of them, including, of course, of course Plato and Socrates, um, were adamantly hostile to democracy. Mm. They thought that the common man, and of course we're talking about men here in the assembly, in the council, um, in every public role, they thought that um, the common man was not competent to decide matters of high state importance. And of course, this is an issue to this very day. Um, Winston Churchill once said, um, a five-minute argument conversation with the average man, average voter, is the best argument against democracy. Um, now, what would Solon, what would Socrates have made of our democracies today? I think the first thing to say is that although there is no direct line of dissent between ancient democracy and our democracy today, it's often said that, you know, the Greeks gave us democracy. That's not true. Democracy died out completely. It does not have a common thread running through it to the present day. Um, it is the product of medieval Renaissance institutions um, that came later. But nonetheless, the first thing to say, I think, in terms of if Solon, 
who is often seen as the founder of Athenian democracy, or Socrates, who was also a critic of Athenian <laughs> democracy, were to be transposed into the modern era, they would be, I think, surprised, I hope, I hope pleasantly surprised to know that democracy in some form was existing today. They would have said, but what you've got isn't democracy. You have what we call representative democracy. What back then the Greeks had was direct or participatory democracy. And there's a huge difference. Participatory democracy means that in theory, any man who wishes, the Greek technical term, hobulominus, that's what the person introducing the assembly would say, anyone who wishes, get up and speak, and he would then point to somebody in the audience. Um, now, that's very different from the system we have today of representative. I, unfortunately, and even more unfortunately, Dan, you don't have any direct impact on decisions that are made in Washington, D.C. Oh, yeah. Isn't that a shame? Yeah. <laughs> um, of course, the complications of our system make that impossible. The you know, population, Athens was a tiny, tiny by comparison, a citizen population of perhaps about thirty to 40,000. And on any given day when the assembly would meet, probably about 6,000 people would be there. So still it's a considerable number but nonetheless much more face to face than anything we are capable of today um, i think that overall if those solon and socrates were to come back today they would probably be shaking their heads with just a little bit i would like to think of well i guess they're trying to do the best they can <laughs> so that's the short answer yes in kind of the same thread here a little bit. In 2006, you wrote an entire book about celebrities in the ancient world titled Celebrity and Antiquity, From Media Tarts to Tabloid Queens. It has a great cover with a classical sculpture wearing sunglasses. If the ancient Greeks had Twitter, who would be the influencers of the classical and Hellenistic eras and why? That, I, that is a question that has fascinated me as well. And, and let me just say, I, I love to find a subject which I feel no one's really looked at and then highlight it and ask some, I hope, pertinent questions to um, find the answers. Celebrity is, of course, all around us today. In the ancient world, the means of promoting your name were much more limited. But from the very first glimpse that we have of Greek society in both the Odyssey and in the Iliad, celebrity is clearly a goal for aristocrats. Um, Achilles' choice of either living a short life and achieving everlasting, well, celebrity isn't quite the word, but let's use it, okay, <laughs> fame, glory, sure. um, and dying um, a, a, a long life but being forgotten he chooses to live a life of, that will leave behind eternal fame. So the Greeks, as much as us today, I think, were very consumed by the concept of reputation. Who is talking about you? The Cyclops Polyphemus, his name means much talked about, which is rather odd, really, because here I am talking about him 
all these centuries after Homer made him such a lively character in the Odyssey. I think to answer your question directly, there were specific individuals, that's what I came to believe writing that book, who were in fact taking steps that enabled their persona, their achievements, their character, their individuality to spread far and wide. And the first character, one of the earliest characters I would cite, would be the Greek politician, Athenian, um, and general, Alcibiades. Alcibiades was a shameless show-off. Um, he was very handsome. Um, young men, as well as love, young women, fell for him. And he did much merely to attract attention. Uh, he was a very um, eloquent speaker in the assembly. He clearly had his clique who supported him. And he presented himself in a way that could be quite outrageous. So, for instance, how he dressed himself and, and so on and so forth. And he reveled in attention. He was a true attention seeker. But in ancient Greece, the means of promoting yourself were extremely limited. I'd like to pass on to another figure who I think played a major role in the development of celebrity in the ancient world, the Emperor Augustus. The Emperor Augustus, we call him emperor. It's not a really very good, accurate title for his status in Rome. He would not have been happy with that title. He also, he always considered himself to be the princeps, the, the, the first citizen is a better term for him, because he didn't want to suggest that he was an autocrat. Absolutely not. But he did take many steps to promote his image. And one of the most important of these, he wasn't the first to do this, but he had the means to do it as no one had done so before, was to mint coins with his head on it. Now, this was not new. This had been happening for centuries. But in the Roman Empire, a coin of the emperor Augustus would circulate among, let's say, eight million people, the inhabitants approximately of the Roman Emperor of the Roman Empire. They could see the head of Augustus on a coin that they picked up. Not everybody used coinage, of course, but you get my point, sure. that he could promote the kind of face whom he was. And he used other means to promote himself. For instance, he employed Virgil um, to write an epic poem. It didn't quite turn out exactly how Augustus wanted, but he used literature, he used art, he used coinage, he used um, statues of his face and so forth that people could recognize. So recognizability became something very important to the institution of the Principate in the Roman Empire. Hmm. You know, there's a, a, a factoid in the dust jacket flap of um, your ancient Greece book, and I'm going to guess um, this will surprise people. Tell me about the most popular Greek pet and why it was so popular. The most popular Greek pet? Yes. I am not sure I know the answer to that. Oh, really? <laughs> so, the goose. The goose. Well, the goose was a, uh, a very interesting... I mean, we, we don't think of geese as um, pets. And, and let me just say, can I say a word very briefly about pets? Sure. I mean, we, we tend to think of um, our relationship with animals to be rather unique. And I think it is today. I'd like to think that, that we have moved on a little bit. Because I don't think animals were very well treated in the ancient world. Dogs, for instance... 
um, would not have shared your bed as they do perhaps for some people and cats and so forth. They were much more wild. They were half tame, half wild largely. Um, but an, a goose or a, um, a, a little bird were often pets that children would have. And so they became much more associated with with, with infancy, childhood, and the um, um, although childhood in the ancient world wasn't exactly the same as it is today, it was much shorter for one thing. You would be put to work very early on unless you were extremely wealthy. But still, um, in those early years, um, it would be a way for a child to play and relate to an animal and so forth. And so I think that had we been transposed back to ancient Greece, we would see a lot of children playing with little animals such as geese and little birds and so forth. Dogs, on the contrary, were used for hunting, um, for guarding, guarding the home and so forth. They probably didn't have a very close relationship with their owners, although there is that wonderful scene in the Odyssey where Odysseus returns to his palace after 20 years and his dog Argos recognizes him and tries to get up and welcome Odysseus and his little tail starts wagging and Odysseus can't recognize him because if he does, he'll reveal his identity in his disguise as a beggar and poor Argos dies. <laughs> Presumably has a heart attack because of his happiness at seeing his master return. Very sad. In your travels and time conducting research... What's the oldest object or relic of antiquity that you've had a chance to physically handle and examine? Well, I'm, I must tell you, um, and I have sort of certain reservations about this now, but I, but I do have a, something called a shabti. Now, a shabti is an Egyptian object, and the Egyptian belief was that when you go to the afterlife, uh, you still have to work. Um, the afterlife is exactly identical to life on Earth, except it's probably rather nicer because I don't think the dead become sick and they don't age and so forth. And uh, many years ago, I bought a shabti because it was the belief that when you were called upon to do various kinds of work, if you had a little object in the shape of a human being, and you get called to do something, you know, like you have to go and teach, you say to your shabti, shabti, go and teach. Shabti, uh, go and weed the garden. Shabti, do this and that. And so I, I was, I'm very attached to my little shabti, and I hope I will, when I depart, be with it, and he will do my work for me. But if you want to be really careful, you'll have 365 shabtis, one for every day of the year. So that is the oldest object that I possess, and I would say it's probably about 500 BCE. Is there a film that most accurately depicts the ancient world? And conversely, is there one you would consider to be the most awful? <laughs> yes. Um, let's start with the most awful. I mean, I... <laughs> the, the, the film of Troy that was made um, about 15 years ago um, was, to me, a big disappointment, one might say, because, and I always, whenever I'm telling, as I did today, I'm teaching the Odyssey, 
I begin by saying, you know, this is an extraordinarily sophisticated work of art because it doesn't tell the story in a straightforward, linear way from beginning to end. It starts, as the Roman poet says, in medias rays in the middle and then it goes back and then it goes forward and so forth. Whereas the film starring Brad Pitt, nothing against Brad Pitt, great actor, like him very much. Um, but the film starring Brad Pitt just plods on from beginning to end in a way that doesn't build excitement and doesn't really convey anything, I think, about ancient Greece. So I would put that very low down in my sense of how the ancient world can be recreated. And, and let me just say, I'm very much in favor of um, attempts to recreate Rome because they actually do a good job in some cases. Um, I, I did like Gladiator, I have to say. <laughs> I think that that created um, a very good sense of what Rome was like, um, even though the expert um, who was asked to her opinion to help to recreate it was so unhappy with the result that she refused to have her name associated with it. <laughs> Kathy Coleman, yes, very distinguished archaeologist, scholar. Um, but I think actually um, it does a very good job. I mean, Rome was dirty. I, the, the series, the Rome series, if you've seen that, mm -hmm. um, also, I think, does an excellent job in showing the dirt and the grime and the chaos of ancient Rome. I actually think it's easier to recreate ancient Rome than it is Greece, because, you know, what was Greece? Well, it was kind of a peasant society in many ways. Rome was a metropolis, a thriving metropolis of probably a million people, everything bursting at the seams, buildings falling down because of earthquakes, being, you know, fires taking place and so on and so forth. But you somehow that's easier to get to grips with, I think. And I think both Gladiator, uh, Ridley's film, and uh, Rome, the series that was made in Italy, both do an excellent job in suggesting the, the, the smell and the grime of Rome, which I would love to have experienced myself. Well, that's a great segue for my next question. And, uh, you know, when I watch something uh, about the ancient world, if I am watching Rome, like on HBO or um, one of the older movies, I do love Gladiator as well. Um, you know, my mind always wanders into <laughs> how they handled sanitation in such large cities. And I always... I feel like most people know about Rome's sewers, right? That's so famous. Um, but how was sanitation handled in other cities like Athens? And, and how did they supply water to everyone? I always wonder about that in a, in a large place. Well, the, obviously, let, let's talk about Greece first. We'll go to Athens. Um, in 430 BCE, a terrible plague broke out, and it probably reduced the population by about a third due to an unusual circumstance, which was that the entire population living outside the city um, was brought inside the city walls. Most cities were walled, of course, in antiquity. And that put a burden upon the infrastructure, so to speak, which resulted in this terrible plague. But even in the best of circumstances, um, there was very poor sanitation, of course. Now, Athens, um, the Agora, which is the sort of uh, central place of meeting for Athenians just under the shadow of the Acropolis where everybody comes to every day has something running through it that 
archaeologists have called the Great Drain. And it's a rather imposing name for a little tiny sort of channel that runs through the Agora. The Cloaca Maxima, which is the one in Rome, is, is actually a, a, you know, a, a very, very impressive uh, piece of engineering altogether. But the, but the great drain that runs through the Agora is not. And the fact of the matter is that the Greeks had a very hard time um, maintaining even a basic level of sanitation. Uh, there were officials called agronomoi who were required to monitor the removal of waste products um, from the city to a distance of about a mile, I think, or probably a bit less outside the city walls. But, I mean, their hands were over tied. Not, well, it was an overwhelming task to maintain the city, I think, in what we would consider to be hygienic conditions. Mm. And, um, you know, food would not be eaten when it was fresh, certainly not meat or fish. I mean, you would be um, constantly exposed to germs. There was no sense, really, of what a germ is. Although the Athenians, some Athenians, did think that the plague that they suffered was caused by the Peloponnesians somehow polluting their um, water, mm. their springs and so forth. Now, both the Greeks and the Romans, of course, had these fantastic aqueducts, um, which were highly calibrated and which served all the major cities. Um, the Greeks also um, had water, which they brought from uh, sources outside the city. Um, but often these sources would, of course, become polluted. So there was no guarantee that the water that you were drinking would be pure. Hmm. And clearly, one of the reasons why we, can, we think that waterborne diseases would have been very high in the ancient world was precisely because of the contamination of the water supply. Um, the Greeks took one measure to, um, you know, did they understand anything about germs? Well, bodies could not be buried inside the city. Funerals took place outside the city. And although that was for a religious taboo, I think it suggests that there was some sense in which the Greeks understood that a dead body um, was not something you wanted to um, um, have too much contact with once it started to, I have to say, rot. Um, but overall, I think most cities, um, in the Greek world especially, would have faced annually, on an annual basis, um, certain diseases which were borne primarily by the fact that there was very much a lack of sanitation. And that goes back, one last point on that, to childbirth, of course, because you couldn't sanitize um, if you were performing. I mean, the Greeks were highly sophisticated, and, you know, you had surgical instruments and all that kind of thing, but they wouldn't sanitize them. Mm. And, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, put the baby in a hot water probably. I don't know whether they would, but it certainly wouldn't be sterilized necessarily. So birth was a big, big trauma. And it was one of the reasons why the um, infant mortality, that's to say deaths of children in the first year of their lives, was as high as one in three. Wow. Well, in 2001, you published a book titled The Greek Way of Death. Um, what, what did a Greek funeral look like? 
most important thing to understand, I think, is that a funeral was an opportunity to advertise your family. Um, certainly, if you were an aristocrat, you would use a family to sort of, sorry, use a funeral to sort of um, emphasize how powerful you were, how wealthy you were. Um, over time, um, the Athenians passed laws restricting the display that you could indulge in, restricting the size of the mourning body and so forth. But death was very much a presence in Greek society, particularly um, much more so than it is in our society. It took place most often in the home, of course, and people in the home would engage with the dead body. They would touch it, they would fondle it, um, they would lament over it, of course, um, but they would show an engagement with the dead body, which to us is anathema. I mean, you know, we may go to the um, the morgue and kiss the dead, um, but the Greeks would be much more demonstrative and they would, you know, they would really um, engage with the corpse. I don't mean that they would sort of pick it up and embrace it or anything like that, but, you know, people would, it wouldn't be all presented in a way like it is when we go to a funeral home, you know, in Sunday suit and all that kind of thing. Um, it would just have a shroud over it. A face would be obviously exposed and it would be lying there very much as a dead body, so to speak. Um, the other part to answer to your question really is if you're wealthy, you would have erected a tomb on one of the major highways leading out of the city. You couldn't bury, as I mentioned a moment ago, inside the city. But once you move outside the city, then the most important roads would have had um, 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 funerary monuments alongside them. So that's one of the reasons why you have the dead addressing the passerby. There's a famous um, monument epigraph written to the Spartans who died at Thermopylae, the 300 Spartans. Go tell the Spartans, you who pass by, meaning the Spartan authorities, that here, obedient to their laws, we lie. And so just imagine if, um, <clears throat> you know, all around the Beltway in D.C., you had funerary monuments, um, which you saw, which would be telling you this famous family, this famous family, and so forth. Because the burial, just like the funeral itself, was very much a part of life. You know, we have that saying in Christianity, in the midst of death, uh, in the midst of life, you are in death. That was very much the case in ancient Greece. And of course, in Athens, in, in, in Rome, Roman Empire as well, death was very much more a presence. And in the Roman system, if I'm just going to that, you know, people in aristocratic families would wear masks of dead ancestors to suggest the continuation, the unbroken continuation from one's ancestors to the present day. You know, one of the many <clears throat> lasting impacts of the Greeks was also the creation of the trial by jury system. Um, you know, we still use to this day. What would the ancient Greeks say about modern jury trials? Are they almost identical? Now, here I think there is a much more, um, and again, our trials obviously derive from, you know, go back to the Middle Ages, really. But here we're much more on a par with the Greeks. Now, trial by jury, so far as we know, and I think it's probably true, was an invention of Greek democracy. Democracy is based on political equality 
and on judicial equality as well, trial by a jury of your peers. The two go hand in hand. You can't be judged by some individual who has special authority, who isn't necessarily part of the common system. That's not democratic. That was what the Greeks believed, and I'm glad to say that's what we believe in our society as well. So the Greeks did indeed judge, have a judgment by a jury of one's peers. The only difference is their juries were much, much larger. Some were as large as 601. Oh, wow. And um, those were large because the Greeks wanted to prevent bribery. Huh. They believed that a larger jury would be not so easily bribed. You'd have to bribe lots and lots of people, <laughs> of course. Um, there are differences. One is that there was a very limited time to any court case. And what happened was that the prosecutor spoke first, and he spoke for, by the way, he, because women could not appear in their own name in an Athenian uh, court, uh, he would speak for, let's say, about an hour and a half, um, two time to the last second because they had an apparatus called the clepsydra, means a sort of water clock. Um, water thief is a literal meaning. And they had a very basic but precise way of being able to time a speech literally down to the last second. So the prosecutor would speak, say, for 90 minutes. He would sit down. Then the defense would speak for 90 minutes. He would sit down. The jury would immediately vote, and it would be a secret vote. There would be no discussion, no deliberation, no appointment of a forum of the jury, anything like that. They'd come back. They'd pass their judgment. In some cases, the um, punishment was already decreed for certain offenses. Um, but if it weren't, then it would be up to both the prosecution and the defense to recommend a penalty. And then they would... Again, the jury would retire and they would come back and they would either accept one or the other. So in the case of Socrates' trial, Socrates um, recommends a fine, but he does so very half-heartedly. And the prosecution recommend execution and the jury return and they opt for execution. Hmm. And by the way, no lawyers in ancient Greece. Ah. So um, and nobody equivalent to a judge either. So all those wonderful students that we have going into the legal profession, you've got to find another job. <laughs> You're, um, I understand you're finishing a new book uh, titled Gods and Heroes in Their Own Words. What about it's different from your past work? Well, I, I was asked to write this book. And initially I thought, you know, we've, there are lots of books around that sort of tell the myths which is what it's about. It's about the stories of the gods and the heroes. Lots of books around that tell the myths um, in various forms as a recent book um, come out, which is very popular by Stephen Fry, published in England. He's an actor. Um, and, you know, it's very lively, very witty. And um, I knew about this book and I thought, well, you know, why write another book? And then I suddenly had the thought, well, what if I tell these stories not in the third person, but as the gods and heroes experience these events. So we get Zeus, you know, talking about what's it like to be Zeus? Huh. 
instead of descriptions of Zeus doing this, doing that, and the other, Zeus speaking in his own name, saying, you know, it's a really very hard job being Zeus, especially when you're married to Hera, my wife, and why shouldn't I go off and have multiple affairs and so forth? And so it's a new way. I, I, I like to think, I, I, you know, I don't know anything that's quite like this before. So I've had a lot of fun um, trying to get into the characters of all the gods and the major heroes, people like Heracles and Perseus and Odysseus, etc., etc. And also another thing I've tried to do, you know, when you tell the stories of gods um, and heroes, you know, they tend to, there's no connection necessarily between one story and another. So I've tried to find a way to link them all together. So I'm following in the footsteps of my great predecessor, the Roman poet um, Publius Ovidius Maro, whom we know as Ovid, who wrote an extraordinary book called The Metamorphoses um, in the um, um, late first century BCE. And he links all the stories together by the theme of a metamorphosis, a, sh a, you know, a shifting of shape. And uh, so I've tried humbly to follow in Ovid's direction. And the other thing I've done in this book is to, um, I'm really keen on art, so I've illustrated it as well, and I've had a great deal of fun doing that. I'm going to get into that in the next question, but I actually have another question too um, that is uh, along the same lines, because you also just finished another book, right? So you finished two books recently, or finishing one, um, and this one is, is called How to Survive in Ancient Greece. Yes. So if there's one takeaway as to the key to survival in ancient Greece, what is it? Be prepared to survive without the internet. Okay. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, there's many. It was Both these books I was asked to write by the same publishing company in England called, um, great name, um, Pen and Sword. And, um, you know, it sort of takes me in a slightly different direction because although... I hope that what I've written is, um, you know, not just freewheeling thoughts out of my own head, but it's enabled me to be what I would call a bit more creative than I have allowed myself to be, or indeed how any academic writer is allowed to be, you know, when you think of how one needs absolutely um, to be um, defended in terms of what ideas, facts, statements, whatever you put forward. And this has enabled me to be a bit more imaginative. And um, so the idea of putting into my head the thought, okay, what would it be like if I were to return to Athens in the year 420, that's the year I take, the year when Athens is recovering from the plague and still at its height, um, and it seems like almost a, a kind of a, a very good, if you're going to go back to Athens, I would go back in 420, okay? And um, so in, in writing this book, I tried to put myself in the head and the body of a contemporary man, woman, child. Um, what would you encounter? What would you need to be aware of? Um, you mentioned at the beginning about um, um, the age structure of Greek society you know, if you had been walking down the street of Athens in 420, um, predominantly you would have seen people under the age of 20. 
actually. Certainly under the age of 25, but because of the plague, that would have altered things even further. Um, a woman would survive to her mid, mid to late 30s. A man would live a few years more. The woman would uh, typically die earlier because of the rigors of childbirth. And there are all sorts of ways, I think, in which one can visualize a very different world. I think that the Greeks can't prove it, but I think the Greeks had a sharper sense of smell because it would have been more important to be able to smell in the ancient world. I think they probably had better hearing as well. But of course, once all that starts to decline, there are no hearing aids. Hmm. There are no corrective lenses. And the best you've got is a cane. I mean, I, I came here today on crutches. And if I had been in ancient Greece, I wouldn't be going to the physiotherapist tomorrow morning. I'd be just hobbling and nor would dear campus safety be helping me around the campus <laughs> either. So, you know, I often think, gosh, how different life would be living in the ancient world. Um, I think I, I try to encourage my imaginative or imaginary reader in this book, um, um, How to Survive in Ancient Greece, that, you know, there are good things there as well. Um, for instance, you know, your connections with your family would be very tight. There would be a very strong support system, I think, um, with your family. Um, and there were other benefits as well. I mean, you would, you know, it's, a, it's very beautiful. And I think the Greeks did respond to beauty, no pollution, etc., etc. But at the same time, it was very, very tough on the body. And that's the first thing that I advise my imaginary readers to be aware of, that's for sure. <laughs> so you've been teaching and writing for, you know, more than 30 years, right? Um, and these two books will be the first time that you've taken on the task of personally doing illustrations. Yes. Why did, why did you do that? Well, you know, I came, I, um, 30 plus years ago, I went to a, a you know, I did drawing. I actually don't say this to puff myself, very humble man. Um, <laughs> but I've never had an art class in my life. And, um, but I did go to, um, I like life drawing. That's to say nude. Okay. So I did that. Um, over 30 years ago and I kept two of my drawings and um, I've kept them all over those years I took them back from Canada to England because I was doing my MA in Canada at the time back to England and then back to the States and they kind of haunted me <laughs> and they kind of you know said well why don't you have another go so I started going to a um, life drawing class in um, uh, Utica every week and from there, I started to want to develop a little bit further. I mean, I love drawing the nude figure. I have to say that it is the, you know, the, the, the human form is so adaptable, flexible, changeable, and all the rest of it. So it's an excellent exercise for somebody who is really learning to draw. But at a certain point, I felt, well, you know what? I want to do something a little bit different as well. So for particularly the book on heroes, I started to think, okay, well, I want to illustrate these stories. You know, I want a minotaur, I want a, a centaur, I want these monsters, etc., etc. And I base them off images from Greek vases because we have an extraordinary repertoire of images from Greek vases that illustrate, that, that, that use Greek mythology. 
as well as scenes from daily life as well. So I started to sort of draw in a style that was inspired by these pots. And I, I found it, you know, it, it, was, it enabled me to be, I would say, creative in a different way. And um, also to feel a different kind of connection with the stories as well. Once you start to draw them, you think about them in a slightly different way. And you think about your book in a different way as well. You know, the, your book then becomes not just the words, of course, but the images as well, and the images in relation to the words, the words in relation to the images. And that, to me, was a very special experience. And um, I hope I'll find ways to continue. We're at question 13. Okay. Your TED-Ed videos about a day in the life of an ancient Athenian and a day in the life of a Roman soldier are really fantastic. What would a day in the life about a professor of the classics look like? Well, of course, at the moment, I'm, you know, struggling to get out of bed with my crutches. But most of the morning, most of the day, I bounce out of bed. Um, I have never, ever, and I, I, get, I get very emotional when I talk about teaching. You know, we've talked about research, but teaching has been um, every bit as much important to me over the years that I've been in Colgate, it has inspired me to write. Um, you know, my, my work would not have thrived if I had not had the questions asked me by students, the opportunities offered by the university to teach courses that um, have later resulted in books. Um, you know, I wrote a book um, on um, called Introducing New Gods, which is about how would you introduce a god, get it accepted, etc., etc. It came out of a first-year seminar. Um, so, you know, I, I have to say I get up in the morning um, excited by the prospect. Um, you know, today, even though it was a bit of a labor getting out of bed, I knew that I would have a good time in the classroom. That's so, been so important for me. Also so important for me is the opportunity, um, I mean, like what I'm doing at the moment, you know, I mean, here I am in this wonderful little studio, um, actually doing something that wouldn't happen in most universities, I think. I've also been able to work with um, the Visualization Lab, Joe Akin, and made wonderful uh, opportunity to work with him to make videos on the death of Socrates and the assassination of Julius Caesar. I've worked with ITS and done a course called um, um, Greeks at War, um, which called upon the forces of a large number of people that the university put at my disposal, so to speak. And um, in those sorts of ways, teaching, people always say this, but it's true. You know, we have this extraordinary privilege of being with young people at the very beginning of their adult lives. And I've just come away from teaching the Odyssey, as I mentioned. The first four books on the Odyssey deal with Telemachus maturing, growing to adulthood. And that's something that one watches and observes and is privileged to be a part of um, in teaching here at Colgate. And as for the life, well, you know, I love to be on the squash court, but I won't be there. I love our um, fitness center. That's very important to me. I have a wonderful circle of friends here as well. I have to say that, that I have been so privileged by the company I have been able to keep, both in the classroom 
and outside the classroom. And I have a cat at home. I have a wonderful son and a daughter. And um, life has been so good at Colgate. I have to say that. I'm immensely grateful. That was 13. Thank you. Thank you, Robert Garland, for sharing your thoughts with us today. Make sure to tell your friends and family about the podcast and let us know how we're doing. Email 13 at colgate.edu, that's the number 13, with your thoughts or ideas and any questions you may have. I'm sure we may find a professor or staff member who can help answer them. Have a wonderful week and keep asking questions. 13 is a production of the Colgate University Office of Communications. Audio engineering by Brian Ness. Logo art by Catrail Pritz. Executive producer, Laura Jack. And I'm your host and producer, Dan DeVries. Visit colgatemagazine.com and colgateresearchmagazine.com for more in-depth faculty research stories.